If you have your Bible with you and you'd like to turn to Nehemiah chapter 10, I invite you to do that. We are in the last sermon of a seven-part series on the book of Nehemiah. We started it on January the 3rd, and I hope that you've been able to journey along with us. It's been an exciting time. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. Today I want to talk about our responsibilities, as we see in the text several times. The people claimed that they would uphold their responsibilities to the God and said, we will not neglect the house of our Lord. So with that in mind, I just want to um, think today about covenant, about uh, engaging in covenant with our God, God of covenant, with the responsibilities that we have. And often we make agreements through our words, kind of like a handshake if you think about it. In the days before COVID-19, the handshake was commonplace. We didn't think twice about shaking somebody's hand, at least I didn't. Maybe it was at a job interview or when a young man meets his girlfriend's father for the very first time. Or in the meet and greet here at church, you remember how we used to give hugs and handshakes as we walked around the sanctuary and greeted one another? And we can't do that anymore and probably won't be able to do that kind of thing as we make it through the pandemic. But what about the handshake deal where business deals were often that were worth millions were made over a handshake? As I understand it, the story behind the tech giant Google, which is a household name now, is that it started with a handshake. Andreas Bechelsheim was one of the founders of Sun Microsystems, a very wealthy man. And in August of 1998, he had some extra cash laying around. And the story goes that Larry Page and Sergey Brin, two PhD students at Stanford University, approached Beckelsheim with a sketch of a search engine that had begun as a research project. Bechelsheim liked what he saw, and on the spot, he wrote a check for $100,000. No contract, no lawyers, no nothing. Nothing but a hunch that what these two students were up to was something, well, most assuredly big. And I'm sure that they exchanged handshakes as they entered into this agreement. Prior to that time, Google did not exist as an entity. He made $2 billion out of that handshake deal. That's amazing. I did a little research on the history of a handshake. In his History.com article, Evan Andrews reports that in the days of old, a handshake was a gesture between two people to express that they had peaceful intentions. When they extended empty hands, they could show that they were not holding weapons and harbored no ill will toward one another. The up and down motion of a handshake was supposed to dislodge any knives or daggers that might be hidden up a sleeve. Yet another explanation is that the handshake was a symbol of good faith when making an oath or a promise. When they clasped hands, people showed that their word was a sacred bond. Today, deals are still made in good faith with a handshake, but they will certainly be, be followed by a contract, an agreement in writing. 
Sadly, we live in a climate today where we may have the best of intentions, but the other party may not. So the best lesson is to always get it in writing. Some of you have had experiences in, well, maybe you've bought something or gotten an estimate on something, and it didn't turn out like you thought, and you said, I wish I would have got it in writing. It's always a very important thing to do. Sad that we have to do that, though, isn't it? Well, as we finish our Nehemiah series today, we're going to see how the people of Judah, the Israelites, made a verbal commitment to God to help one another. They made a commitment to God and to one another, sort of like a handshake, if you will. But then they took the next step, and they weren't asked to do this. They did it voluntarily. They put their intentions in writing. Remember then in chapter 8, which we talked about last Sunday, the people summoned Ezra, the scribe and priest, to come to them and to lead them in the reading and the study and the understanding of the Torah, the Word of God, the law of God, the laws of Moses, the first five books in the Old Testament. This was during the week of a festival called Tabernacles, booths we talked about last week. The people in this week were moved to tears of sadness for their sins and they repented of their wrongdoings and God worked in their hearts so much that they prayed for hours on end. Chapter 9 of Nehemiah includes one of those spiritual and fervent prayers in all of scripture and I hope that as you go through this week and reflect on the book of Nehemiah that you'll go back and reread chapter 9 and Pray that prayer for yourself. Claim it. Make it your own. It's a beautiful prayer. The Spirit of God moved in such a dynamic way that the people were being transformed from the inside out. Collectively, they decided to recommit their or rededicate their lives to the living God and to each other. I want you to listen to what they did. We'll start out in chapter 9, verse 38. And then we'll get into chapter 10. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So there at the end of chapter 9, before we see what happens next, the people made a binding agreement with one another before God, sort of like marriage vows before God, or maybe, more likely, it was like a renewal of marriage vows where a couple, after being married a long time, decides to renew their vows to one another. This binding agreement or covenant was sort of like a handshake. It was a verbal agreement. The Hebrew word is amanah, and it occurs only here in Nehemiah. It carries the same meaning as the more frequently used word for covenant, which is Berit, Amanah, Berit had the same meaning. Amanah means an act of faithfulness. And it points back to God's covenant with Abram, also later known as Abraham, where there were some expectations placed on Abram. We will be studying covenants that God made with people starting next Sunday as we begin the season of Lent. And we're going to dive deeper into what it means to be a people of covenant, a people of faith who worship a God of covenant, a God of faithfulness, a God of promise. 
But here as we end our time in Nehemiah, the people have overcome great obstacles to see the wall around Jerusalem be completed. They completed it in just 52 days, says the text. And they've experienced such spiritual renewal that they came together and they expressed the desire to um, put it not only verbally, but in writing. They're reaching back to their roots as descendants of Abraham and Sarah. This is echoed in verse 8 of the prayer that you reflect on in chapter 9. They are in essence promising to become once again, by their faithfulness, children of Abraham. The people went a step further though than a verbal agreement or what we would say is a handshake. They decided to put it in writing. And the Hebrew word translated in writing is katav, which means to write or record or inscribe or engrave or to write on. It's the same word that we find in the book of Exodus where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. In this case, the document was in writing and sealed by the leaders and the Levites and the priests. And as you see in chapter 10, Nehemiah is the first person named as to have sealed this agreement. The Israelites listed all the families who entered into this agreement. That's in chapter 10. And then the rest of the chapter reports the ways that they would keep their covenant. The things that they told God that they were going to do. One of the promises that they made, it kind of strains when you read it, and we won't spend much time on this, but it's, worth, it's important to mention it. One of the promises they made was not to give their daughters in marriage to people from the pagan territories around Judah. Now, this is not an indictment against the Gentiles. We know that God has always had a heart for the Gentiles. He's always wanted to reach the Gentiles. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world, all the nations, which is a way of translating the word. It means Gentiles and make disciples and baptize them. So God has always had a heart for the Gentiles, people outside of the Jewish faith back here. And they made this promise because in the past, when they gave their daughters to those in marriage to those outside of the Jewish family, their daughters took on the pagan religious practices of those foreigners. They drifted away from their faith. So this part of the covenant that we read about in chapter 10 was not tied to ethnicity or language or culture, but religion. To truly be a transformed people, they needed to stay true to their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for this time and this place and this people, it was best that they did not marry those from pagan backgrounds. The people promised also to take care of the temple of the Lord and to make worship the center of life and activity and community. And I want to look now at some passages in chapter 10 to see how they did that. We're going to look at verse 32 through 35 of chapter 10 and then verse 39b. So listen as I read God's word again. We, as the people are agreeing, we assume the responsibility, there's that word, for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God. For the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts, and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, 
for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of the Lord our God. And then verse 34. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And then verse 35, we also assume responsibility. There's that word again. For the bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and every fruit tree. Verse 39b, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. A few comments on this passage here. They said that they would come and pay the annual shekel. And that was a form of currency. And it was paid annually by every man 20 years old and over. Likely here it was a third, not a whole shekel, but a third, because the economic conditions were so bad. But they would faithfully bring their shekel to help support the work of the temple. And then first fruits. The concept of first fruits derives from God's creation work because God created everything that exists. All of creation belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. 20, uh, Psalm 24, verse 1. Consequently, that which is first and best belongs to Him and is to be given to Him. Because God's creative power and ownership of everything, the Bible instructs believers to give God the first and the best. The land is also viewed as a gift from God, and the best of it is to be given to the Lord. The first fruits of crops, the wheat harvest, olive oil, the finest new wine, honey, sheep wool, and fruit. The first and the best. How often do I give God the leftovers? How often do we give God what is left over instead of the first and the best. That's something that we all struggle with and that we all have to reckon with. And the people were renewing their faith because they hadn't been doing that in those days. And they made a decision that they would be responsible for these first fruit offerings. The Old Testament makes it so clear that everything that God's people have is to be viewed as from God and gained through His providence, says the psalmist. Nehemiah, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 38 is one of the many references to the tithe in the Bible. T-I-T-H-E, the tithe. It literally means a tenth or 10%. The first 10%, the first 10% of the harvest of the fruit was to be given to the Lord. Whatever it was, it was the first and the best. And it was to be given consistently over a period of time. It's not how much, it's that it's the first and best, and that it's given consistently over a pattern of time that the Levites and the priests might carry out their duties and that the worship would be able to continue along without disruption for the Hebrew people. The theme here is that the people assumed responsibility to be God's children and to follow through with their part of the covenant. The Hebrew word for this is mitzvah, mitzvah, and it means to establish or set or constitute an ordinance or 
a command. God calls you and me as people of the new covenant of Jesus to the same practice of giving. While the standard practice in the Old Testament was the tithe, Jesus never did away with that. In fact, he revised it and he unleashed it. Jesus unleashed the tithe. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21. Not long ago, I went to put on a sweater and I actually wore that sweater to church, and, and I, I was wearing it when I was preaching. And when I got home and took my sweater off, I noticed there were a bunch of holes all in it, tiny holes. You probably never would have seen them on your screen, but I sure did. Moth had gotten in, it's a wool sweater, and had eaten all these holes all in it. And I took it to the cleaners to see if this... Uh, the, the person that does the sewing could fix it, and she just looked at me and she said that she couldn't do it. So we don't want to place all of our treasures in things that can be eaten up by moth or destroyed or rust out. Rather, our treasure is to be in heaven. And Jesus said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Jesus talked about unleashing the tithe when he told his disciples about the story of the woman who was a widow and who gave everything that she had. In Luke 21, he says, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury, and he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. And he told his disciples, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The Old Testament mandate, as you see here in Nehemiah, is 10% the tithe of the first fruits of our labors. And Jesus takes this to a new level and says, basically, you can't outgive God. He desires that we give our all. At least that we have the willingness to do that, to release what we have been given back to him. This reminds me of what the prophet Malachi says. He was likely a, a contemporary of Nehemiah, perhaps prophesying during the time that Nehemiah had gone back to Persia. The people of God were falling away from their responsibilities. And Malachi says... I, the Lord, do not change. These are the words of God from, uh, through Malachi. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from the decrees, my decrees, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And God says, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. 
Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out such a blessing that there will not be room enough to contain it all. The last part of the book of Nehemiah records how the people decided to live out their commitment in community. Nehemiah led them to dedicate the wall once that was completed. There were still a lot of details, so even after the 52 days, there was still some work to be done. And then Nehemiah ended up going back to Susa in Persia about 12 years after he had first arrived in Judah, where he resumed his service to the Persian king. And sometime later, the king gave him permission to come back again to Judah and to continue to help the people live out their lives as children of God. They were not perfect and, in fact, would struggle with obeying God just like you and I do. They needed leadership and guidance just like you and me. Part of the covenant that the people made with God, as we have read, said we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. A literal translation is we will not forsake the house of our God. We will not ignore the house of our God. We will not abandon or leave the house of our God. We will not desert the house of our God. Here the promise is to assume their responsibility, to do their part as individuals, as a unified community, so that the worship of God is the center of all that they do and the work of God would continue. They were children of Abraham and they would be the people through whom God would send a man named Jesus who would make the ultimate sacrifice, who would give it all to draw people into a right relationship with God and to free them from their sins, that they would be reconciled unto God. They assumed responsibility to live within the covenant that was initiated by God and would continue as new covenant was written on their hearts and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that would be sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The people may not have known that part of the salvation story that they played, but we know the story. The people back then in Nehemiah's time didn't see the big picture like you and I do. And I want to go back to, or I guess you would say forward, to the Gospel of Matthew as we see the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12 and following. After the exile to Babylon, and this is right here in chapter 1, and you can see how it ties in back to our study of Nehemiah and some of Ezra. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, you remember, was a governor like Nehemiah who was sent from Persia to reconstruct the temple of God. He came, and then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. Zerubbabel is in the genealogy of Jesus. So all of this is part of our history. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary, 
was the mother of Jesus called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile in Babylon to the Messiah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God desires that we are faithful to God as God has been faithful to us, that we love God with all our heart, soul, and our mind and strength, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Love of God is inextricably linked to love of neighbor, as you heard and sensed as Philip read from Matthew 25. And we are to love ourselves. That's connected to Paul writes that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. May we not neglect the house of God. May we not neglect the temple of the Holy Spirit. May we be faithful as people in covenant with God through Jesus Christ to pledge to worship together, to give of the first fruits of our labor, to pray, to meditate on God's word, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. May we be captured by the vision of living as God's covenant people on earth as it is in heaven. May we assume the responsibility of being God's faithful covenant people. And let us never, ever neglect the house of our Lord. Amen.